All right, as that goes around, now I'm ready. I've covered all my bases. I can just preach. Here we go. So this is the final week of our summer series. We have been in this series called You Asked For It for what feels like 12 months to me. I know it hasn't been, um, but I have been wrestling with questions that you guys submitted months ago. And here's what I found. I think I've mentioned this. Every question should have been its own series. Like every question, I would preach the sermon, then I'd walk out going, I should have said more. There's more that could be said. We could do this for four weeks. And so I'm ready to get done with this series because I don't like having things left to say. But this, this last week, um, to me, was the hardest question that came in. And, and I saved this question because I thought it was such a good question. Now, before I get to the question, I want to read to you a few scriptures that are probably going to mess with your mind a little bit, okay? Some of you, you just avoid these parts of the Bible. I get that. So you don't get to avoid them today because I got the microphone. And, and I just want you to see some of the tension here. here. Here's where we'll start. You don't have to turn to all these. We'll put them on the screen. Deuteronomy 20, here's verse 1. It says, God says to his people, when you go to war against your enemies and you see horses and chariots and an army greater than yours, do not be afraid of them. I like that. Be courageous because the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt will be with you. Then he goes on in verse 12. If they refuse to make peace and they engage you in battle, lay siege to that city. When the Lord your God delivers it into your hand, put to the sword all the men in it. However, in the cities of the nations, the Lord your God is giving you and as an inheritance, do not leave alive anything that breathes. Oh, how he loves us. So verse 17, completely destroy them. The Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. That's Deuteronomy. Let's go over to Joshua 6, verse 20. When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. This is Jericho. Cool story. You got this in Vacation Bible School. What they didn't give you was the rest of this. So everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord. That sounds nice. That sounds like a worship service. And they destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys, by the way. How he loves us. Joshua 11, verse 20. For it was the Lord himself who hardened their hearts to wage war against Israel so that he might destroy them totally, exterminating them without mercy as the Lord has commanded Moses. Anybody a little disturbed yet? Okay, Isaiah, let's go a little farther in the Old Testament. Isaiah 13, verse 4. Listen, a noise on the mountains like that of a great multitude. Listen, an uproar among the kingdoms like nations massing together. The Lord Almighty is mustering an army for war. See the day, this is verse 9. See the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. Why don't we sing songs about this? Men would be more flocking to the church. This is great! Right? That sounds like West Virginia culture. Like, we're, we're good, right? Now, I want to show you a little bit of tension. Ezekiel 18, verse 23. Here's what God says also in the Old Testament. Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Well, it sure sounded like it back in Deuteronomy, <laughs> declares the sovereign Lord. Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? And then Isaiah 2, same book, same writer. In the last day, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills. All the nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. Then he goes on, verse 4. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares so they won't fight anymore. And their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Jesus says to his disciples, when someone strikes you, completely destroy them. No, he says, turn the other cheek, right? 
When Peter strikes the man in the garden and cuts off his ear, Jesus says, Peter, put away your sword. What do we do with this? Do you see this question yet? Do you see this odd tension that when we read parts of the Old Testament, we find God going, when you walk in a city and they don't like you and they stand against you, don't just sing Christian songs. Stop their breathing. Like that's what he says. It's an incredible tension because it is at times like we're able to conceive of God in a couple different ways. First, we love, by the way, we love God's love and grace. We'll sing those songs all day long, won't we? Like I'm joking, but you guys would sing, oh, how he loves us all day long. But if I added a verse that said, he might wipe you off the face of the planet if you don't straighten up, oh, how he loves us so, you'd all panic a little bit. We love that nature. We love his forgiveness, his mercy, his compassion. We're good with that. The tension is no one writes songs about about God ordering the destruction of entire cities. Nobody steps up and says, hey, we've covered the love of God. Now let's cover the wrath of God. We want to make sure we're balanced in our worship because the God of these violent passages is really hard to figure out. And this God just doesn't sit well with us today. See, there's this difficulty because for many of the passages I just read, listen, and and others like them, the nature of such evil in the world that causes innocent people to suffer is enough. Some of your friends, some of you maybe have written God off because of these verses. You may have friends who are atheists who say, I don't believe in the God of the Bible because the God of the Bible ordered the destruction of entire cities and you nice white Christian people just don't talk about it. One of the most famous Atheist in the world, Richard Dawkins, wrote a book called The God Delusion. He said this, What makes my jaw drop is that people today should base their lives on such an appalling role model as Yahweh. And even worse, that they should try to force the same evil monster, whether fact or fiction, it doesn't matter, on the rest of us. What he's saying is it doesn't matter if God is real. If he's like the God that we find in the Old Testament, in those passages that I read, then he shouldn't be followed. By the way, this is not a new tension. In the early church, there was a man named Marcion, and Marcion believed, he he believed that the God of the Jewish people in the Old Testament could not be the same God of Jesus in the New Testament. He couldn't be the same God of Paul. And so what Marcion did is he edited the scriptures. He eliminated these difficult passages to focus on the ones more about love and grace and forgiveness. This is much like what Thomas Jefferson did. You know this story, right? He edited his Bible to take out all the supernatural stuff. Thomas Jefferson's Bible had holes in it where he would rip out the supernatural things. See, Marcion had a problem, though, because he was cast out of the church. He was labeled a heretic. The church leaders said, we won't accept your teachings. And that leads us to this question today that's so important. And it's the question that somebody submitted. What do we do with the parts of Scripture that show God as violent? What do we do with these places where God seems so utterly violent? And in fact, the specific question for this week came out of a sermon I preached a couple months ago. That was funny to me because a lot of the questions were like, well, you said this, what about this? And I was like, well, you should have interacted then, right? But they were asking this question because I preached a sermon about the Israelites being freed from their slavery in Egypt. Someone heard me tell this story of freedom and the question basically called me out for not dealing with this part. You remember this story, right? The Israelites are living in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. Moses is called to free them. Moses goes in. God works all these plagues, the locusts, the blood, the frogs, the gnats, the darkness. Nothing works. And God says, I'm going to send an angel And I want you to go tell Moses and the Israelites because this angel is going to do something. He's going to free them. And here's what he says in Exodus 12. This is where I had you turn. Exodus 12, verse 12. 
The angel says, on that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. I will strike down the firstborn, the children. Verse 13, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Can I just tell you, parents, don't tell this story to your kids at night. This sounds more like Stephen King than the Bible, doesn't it? See, the question somebody actually asked was, what about that time God killed all the children? What do we do with that? What do we do with that when we say we serve a loving, a gracious, a compassion God? Why, why would God do that? Why would he slaughter a generation of firstborns who were innocent? Why does this need to happen? And it's such a critical question. And so what I want to do, I mean, we could literally unpack each of these scriptures and go really deep. I, I want to I explore several things today that I think give us some direction on this. Now, I say direction because I don't have an easy answer. This is the question of the, of the series that I'm like, they're going to walk out and go, he did not answer that at all. You are correct. I don't have the easy answers. But I do believe we see something about God in regards to his enacting violence. When I say enacting violence, God allows that to happen at times, right? He somewhat embodies that. He somewhat, uh, it sounds like he, he offers a mandate to some of his people, go and slaughter the city. And, and, and so I think the, the, the first point, and, I, and I've got about four things I'm going to get through is <laughs> like one and a half probably. The, the, the things that I want to say to you today, the first thing that I want you to grab onto is this. When we look at the Bible, and, and this may disturb you, but it should comfort you, the Bible doesn't bypass human violence. I don't know if you've noticed that. How many of you grew up in a church where you got the G-rated Bible stories, right? You got the nice parts of David and Goliath. You didn't get where David jacked up his family and cheated on his wife and killed people and broke everything, right? Where he just messed everything up. You got the, the, the Disney version of Noah in the ark. You know what I'm talking about? Noah was so great. He was so awesome. You know what the first thing Noah did when he came off the ark was? He got plastered. Like he got drunk and passed out. He was like, I've been on this ship with these people from these animals for too long. Get me out of here. That's, that's what happened. But the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible doesn't give us just G-rated stories. The Bible doesn't bypass human violence because, and don't miss this, we live in a violent world. You recognize this, right? Like when we read the Old Testament, if you were to dig into the stories of those cities and those people groups, those cultures that God actually said to his people, go and destroy them. When you study those cultures, what you find were these pagan nations were doing incredibly violent things. They were actually sacrificing children as an act of worship. There was male and female prostitution happening in their temples. When you showed up for worship, this is what was taking place. That's an awkward worship service. I'm just going to tell you. They had idol worship going on, and we look at that and we go, wow, that culture was so violent. But can I just ask you, are we much different? Has our culture bypassed the violence around us? We have people walking into schools shooting children, right? Killing, murdering. 26 young kids killed in Newton, Connecticut. We have leaders who spend every day, all day in the media, ripping each other down committing verbal violence to each other. Countries where, if you haven't, go and read the stories of the Yazidi women who the Islamic State has abducted for sexual slavery. 
just because they religiously believe different things. Genocide carried out against people who come from different tribes. There are populations in our own country, I would argue in our own town, in our own community, who believe that to have darker skin makes you somewhat less. We live in a violent world. We have a world where slavery ripped 12 million people out of the country of Africa and put them in bondage to someone else. So don't tell me the Old Testament world is more violent than our world. We live in a violent world. We are a violent people. What does our violence look like? Our, our violence often is human violence against humans, right? And, and we see that. We see the blood. We see the war. We see the fighting. But do you know that there's violence that doesn't have physical violence that we commit against each other? Do you know our words are one of the strongest weapons that exist on the face of this planet? There's slander committed. There are lies being told. There's character assassination, right? That's how we win in this culture. Do you realize politically that's how you get ahead? You assassinate someone else's character. That's violent. There's gossip that comes into play. It's, it's everything we see around us. Everything we consider funny today. Listen, don't miss this. In our American culture, what is funny today? It's sarcasm. Do you recognize that? Like every sitcom that comes out is built on sarcasm. What does sarcasm do? It makes fun of someone else. It rips someone else down. So there's human violence against other humans. There's also this sense of human violence against non-humans, right? So we live in a world, in a creation, and we see this clear back in Genesis where humans have committed violence against creation. There's no way that you can miss the way we have served to destroy the environment around us. We've committed this, this act of violence against it, that, that people abuse animals. What type of person does that, right? Some of you are more angry about that than human, against humans. We understand this. And I want to say to you, Genesis 6, verse 11, it says this, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and it was full of violence. Can I just say to you, I am so thankful that the scriptures don't ignore this. I don't want a faith that ignores the dark parts of our reality. See, some of you, you're, you're, what, you're like my wife. This is, this is what I would describe. You're, you're, you're the Disney people, okay? Do you know what I mean by that? Some of you are like, no, but I like it, right? <laughs> the Disney people, there's never any darkness. And if it gets dark, it's not going to stay dark for very long because the birds are about to come in and sing and talk to Cinderella. Like, we're all, we're all okay. Everything's going to be all right. Everything's, that, here's, here's who I am. I'm the Breaking Bad person, right? <laughs> not because I'm that bad, but because... It's real, right? It, when we spiral into ourselves, when we spiral into the depths of our sin, of our brokenness, of our humanity, it only gets worse. And to walk through this life ignoring the darkness of our world doesn't help us. It doesn't get us any better. Some of you have ignored the darkness of your world. Did we talk about this last week? Some of you have lived in Lodabar. You know what I'm talking about? The no-name places that you're afraid to name. You've lived there for years because you think the birds are coming to start singing to you and they've never come and you're left in darkness just pretending it doesn't exist. See, the Bible doesn't ignore the darkness. So when we read these disturbing stories of God, part of me, part of us, I think, has to go, man, praise God that he steps into violent places. Praise God that he steps into the darkness of my world, the destruction. Praise God that he steps into those places. So the Bible doesn't bypass human violence. Here, here's the second point today. We see human violence against humans. We see human violence against non-humans. Here's where the struggle comes. Here's where I think this question for today came from. The great theological struggle is not how, why do humans hurt each other? We understand that. 
especially if you're married. We understand that, right? There's, we cause those things. We create those things, or you cause those things, or I cause those things. But the great theological struggle is this. It seems to be divine violence. Our question, our wrestling with these stories of scriptures is, why does God do this? Why does God allow this? Why does God enact this? See, there are some, as I said, there are some answers we don't have. And I want to say to you, that's okay too. It's okay to question. It's okay to doubt. I hope if anything you've seen in this series that often we need to walk out with more questions than we came in with. People that have sat in small group Bible studies with me know that I'm incredibly annoying because it's like just when we figure something out, I'm like, well, what about this? What about this? Because my mind goes to all these questions. Well, the the Bible says, for God so loved the world. Really? God loves the world? Why why does he love the world? The world's annoying, right? Yeah, but God loved the world. Well, which parts of the world? Does he love the people like Hitler? Because that messes with my mind too. Does he love me? Does he still love me? Because I've kind of spit in his face. All these questions are okay. And we see that in the scriptures too. People in the scriptures question the violence of God, the violence that God enacts and allows. See, Abraham bargained with God. Do you remember this story in Genesis where Abraham, God says, I'm going to destroy Sodom? And Abraham says, what if you find 40 righteous people? Do you know this story? Are you guys with me? And God says, okay, if I find 40 righteous people, I won't destroy the city. I think God's going, he ain't going to find 40 righteous people. Abraham's like, okay, well, what about 30 righteous people? And he's like, well, okay, 30 righteous people. It's this auction, right? What about 20? Okay, 20. What about 15, God? If you find 15, will you not destroy this? Okay, I won't destroy. How about 10, God? And I think God maybe got to a point where he's like, you're pushing it, right? Abraham questions it. Why are you doing this? Don't do this. What do you, he's debating with God. Can you imagine? There's entire, there's an entire book of the scripture, listen, called Lamentations. God gave us a whole book of people crying out, going, God, why did you destroy our city? Why did you allow this exile? Why did you allow these people to step in and leave us in a spot? This is what Lamentation said, where the mothers are in the streets, this is so disturbing, eating their own young. That's the violence that we see in the people crying out to God. We see Moses up on the mountain and the Israelites are worshiping with this golden calf and God says, go back down the mountain so I can destroy these people. He's so ticked off. And I think Moses says, God, don't, don't do that. Like, let's, let's spare them. Another questioning, right? See, there's answers we don't have, and the questions are okay. Now, here's, here's what I would say. The misunderstood piece, the piece that we have to kind of grab onto, and I think acknowledge and name, is that the violence that we see in Scripture, often on the part of God, has often become the source of oppression and abuse of others. See, what we have done, what the, what the Christian culture has done at times is take a story of God saying, yeah, go destroy that city. Go completely devote it to me by cutting off everything that breathes, killing it all. And people throughout the ages have taken a story like that and co-opted it for their own agenda and said, now we have the right to go and do what we want to this people group that we consider the other. And I want to say to you, some of this we need to act against. Some of this, we need to recover what the Bible calls a prophetic voice to say it's wrong, it's not okay. Do you realize, and, and, and women in the room, I, I know you do, for a long time, the church, in many ways, in certain pockets, has oppressed women because of these views of Scripture that think, well, it says this, don't do this. Right? We serve in a denomination where the calling of women to ministry has never been limited. Some of you, I know you grew up in a setting where, where the, the mentality was, well, the preacher is the man and the women can do all the other stuff, but they can't hold the microphone, right? 
that was kind of the understanding. Can, can I just say this to you? 99.9.9.9.9% of the churches have women leading their children, pastoring their children, shepherding their children. And I want to say you're giving them the leadership of the most important part of your church, and you're saying they don't belong in leadership in your church. I'm going to say to you, I have three daughters who I want to live fully into the calling God has given them. And don't ever come to me and say God has limited them by some scripture that you've taken out of context without even reading the verses around it or the chapter around it or going to seminary. I'll win that battle. Okay? We're good with that one? So there are wrong types of violence. There is, there, is, there is a legalistic, right? There's a legalistic mentality that sometimes we, I got on that soapbox, I didn't know that was there. There's a legalistic <laughs> mentality of scripture at times where I've watched Christian spiritual parents become somewhat abusive to their children because by, by golly, we spare the rod, we spoil the child. I'm not saying don't discipline your child. I'm saying don't let the Bible speak into the violence that you have in your heart. We need to own that. There's racial injustice still going on in our culture. And I don't care about your politics. I really don't. You can vote however you want, but you can't stand and say what racism is, is okay because you like that candidate. You can't do it. You're not allowed to do that. That's an unfaithful reading of scripture. There's glorification of war that has happened down through the years. The Crusades were ripping scripture out of the context. 9-11 was built on a religious belief from the Islamic front that is faulty and misunderstood. We have exploited the environment biblically saying, oh, look at what the scriptures say. It's ours. We get to deal with this. All of those things need to be called out. We have to recover that voice. These are the sermons I don't like to give, by the way. But see, where this leaves us is the theological question, this, this question of divine violence. And here's what happens. Here, here's where theologians go. We actually come up with several options, or we end up doing these what, what I call theological acrobatics, right? So we read these scriptures in Deuteronomy and the stories in Joshua, and we might one option might be, well, you spiritualize it, right? God didn't really do that. That's more like metaphor and imagery. No! They marched around the city. They yelled really loud. The wall fell down. Then they went in and slaughtered everybody. You can't spiritualize that. You don't put a cherry on that and go, ah, let's go sing how he loves. You don't do that. You can't do that. Some have historically adjust, uh, adjusted this or ignored this. Other theologians will say, well, that part of the Bible is not true. No, Marcion, that's not the way we approach Scripture. We idealize it or we say, this is my least favorite, right? When I say favorite, I'm being sarcastic. Well, God's just mysterious. It's not mysterious. They walked in and slaughtered everybody. See, we can't do that. We've got to wrestle with this question. None of those options work. We have to struggle with this tension. We have to live into this tension. And here's the third point. This is where this takes us. See, in Scripture, God always has a purpose for the violence that he enacts. There's always a purpose to it. Typically, this, there, there's two purposes, right? There's two purposes. And, the, and some of you are not going to like this, but it doesn't mean it's not true. And you get to wrestle with it. So the first purpose that God often enacts violence for is judgment. That we serve a God, yes, he's loving, but the scripture also says he's just that he is a judge, right? Our understanding, see, the way we understand judgment, you grew up entitled. Do you know that? Do y'all understand that? Some of you are like, my kids are entitled. I'm not entitled. I grew up hard. No, listen, you're entitled too. 
Because when I say judgment, you start automatically thinking, well, judgment's unfair. Nobody should judge me. Tolerance, right? Judgment. No, you can't judge me. Here's the reality. See, Jeremiah 17 verse 9 tells us, and you can argue with the scripture about this, the heart above all things is deceitful. I love people who are like, they have such a good heart. Yeah, that's true, but they're wicked first. They learn no before their parents ever taught it to them, right? The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. You're beyond cure. So you know what that tells us? If there's a good and perfect God, which you've all said you believe in, most of you said you believed in, then you can't be perfect because your heart is wicked and beyond cure. So when we think of judgment, it's not about a judge looking at you going, you're evil, you're a stink, get out of here. But it's about justice. See, and for people who suffer in injustice, when the judge shows up, they're excited. Do you understand that? For a people who are suffering with oppression, struggling through life, trying to figure out how to get ahead because the system works against them, they don't fear the judge. They long for the judge. And justice stands against tolerance and says, no, God will make things right. One Jewish rabbi, Abraham Heschel, he said this, our sense of injustice is a poor analogy to God's sense of injustice. The exploitation, listen, don't miss this. The exploitation of the poor is to us just a misdemeanor. Oh, that's sad they did that. We should vote different people in so they'll fix it. To God, it's a disaster. Our reaction is disapproval. God's reaction is something, and I love this that he says, the rabbi says, no language can convey God's reaction to when the, the poor suffer. Nobody can, can, can describe that. And then he says, is it a sign of cruelty that God's anger is aroused when the rights of the poor are violated, when widows and orphans are oppressed? See, the Old Testament shows us these stories and it tells us that the city's being destroyed as God moved the Israelites into the land for the sake of his covenant that he promised were the places where child sacrifice happened. If you saw a child being sacrificed in worship, would you go, would you go oh, we should be really nice to them so they, they kind of just straighten up a little bit. No, you'd be like, we got to stop this. We got to do something about this. It is amazing. See, today, every political party oppresses. Do you understand that? I, I don't care. Again, I, I, I'm sorry. It's politics. Some of you are mad at me already. But every political party, every system oppresses and takes advantage of the poor, the orphan, and the widow. And they do it for their own gain. They do it for their own gain. And it's amazing. God hasn't blown us off the planet you understand that? It's amazing. This is what grace says. God chooses not to walk in here and slaughter us. See, the other reality in, in this judgment piece is that when it comes to sin, sin has always had consequences to it. God has given us freedom because he loves us. God isn't worried about his reputation. Do you understand that when they describe God in Exodus, he's loving, he's faithful, he's merciful, but he's just and he punishes the sins to the third and fourth generation. And we read that and we go, how can he be loving and punishing? How many parents understand you can be loving and punishing, right? We understand that because God doesn't worry. God isn't like, hey, slow down. Let me explain myself. Let me defend my reputation as to why I just. He doesn't ever defend his reputation. He actually loves us enough not to spare us from the consequences of our own sin. So when Adam and Eve sin, the first thing they do is go, holy cow, we're naked and vulnerable. Let's hide from each other. And our sin has left us in this posture of hiding for centuries. 
Divorce today is a violence in a family that kids have to survive, husbands have to survive, wives have to learn to trust again. Perhaps, listen, this is the thing that I want to throw out, and I know this doesn't answer your question, but I think it might raise the right question. Maybe we should be as angry about injustice. Maybe we should be as angry about racial suffering, about oppression of the poor and the foreigner and the alien, which by the way, those are the people God cares about in scripture as God is. Maybe we should be as angry as God is because we all deserve judgment. Oftentimes God's violence is coming from his desire for justice, the rescue of the oppressed. You can't, listen, you can't sit in church worshiping God's grace and miss what it takes for grace to be made real, which is judgment. Here's the second purpose that I think this this violence shows us. It's not just judgment. If it was just judgment, we might be left going, oh, what do we do? But it's salvation. See, the second purpose of God's God's enacting this violence often is judgment, but it's salvation. See, these stories in the Old Testament, the places where God utilizes violence are often the places where God's violence is the means by which his people, watch, don't miss this, where his people are delivered from violence. God steps into violent worlds, violent cultures, and says the only way to get them out of this violence is for me to allow this, to enact this. So Israel lives for 400 years in slavery. Do you think a slave family for 400 years stands and goes, God, why are you killing these people who've oppressed us for 400 years? They go, no, praise God that he's rescued us, that he's carried us out of this. We see this in Noah, right? We, we, one, one, uh, one theologian says the Bible is mainly a record of grace set against a backdrop of horror and misery. Walter Brueggemann, my favorite Old Testament theologian, he said, violence assigned to Yahweh is to be understood, and this is so critical, is to be understood as counter-violence, which functions primarily as a critical principle in order to undermine and destabilize other violence. God wipes these pagan cities out And by the way, it's just a couple times. It's not a pattern, right? He does this because he says that violence can't exist anymore. I have to eradicate it. Many of our systems function in this way today. Doctors don't try to just be nice to a virus. Are you with me? They're not just like, hey, let's just be nice to this, see if it'll leave the body after a couple of days, right? They want to eradicate it. You don't treat cancer that way. Cancer is violent, right? We don't look at cancer and go, ah, maybe if we just talk nice to it, maybe if we just surround it and make it feel really good about itself, give it some therapy. They attack the cancer with violence to get it out. See, the sin is the cancer that's destroyed us. God's violence is always purposeful to move us toward the ultimate shalom and the peace he designed. And here's the last point. And this is the thing that may be hard. God does not change. Scripture tells us he's the same yesterday, today, and what? Forever. So the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. Marcion was wrong. Genesis 1 is where we see the God who started things. He said, it's very good. All these things that I've created, the way they're living together, the shalom, it's very good. I like it this way. But the first act of violence is not on God's part. It's on the sinfulness of humanity, the brokenness of humanity. And it was the violence committed against God when the serpent said, do you really believe what God said? Do you really believe he's good? And they said, well, we're not sure now. You've put this question in our hearts and we committed violence against God. And from that point, our world fell apart. God looks at Adam and Eve and he says, now, guess what? You're gonna have violence in childbirth. 
Guys, you're going to work and toil against the soil. Your hands are going to be cracked and hard because you're fighting against the good that I've given you. You're going to struggle through this. You're going to fight against ourselves. And God's work from Genesis 3 all the way through Revelation was this work of undoing violence and bringing shalom back to the way it was meant to be. I'm going to have Beck come and play because I want to close with the violence in the scripture that I think we tend to miss when we talk about these subjects. See, when you ask this question, what do we do with the violence of God? You're talking about Deuteronomy. You're talking about Joshua. You're talking about these Old Testament passages. But nobody asks, how do we reconcile a God who would give up his own son on the cross? How do we handle that? That, That's... that's, that's the most violent way somebody could die. Jesus was, was laid down and beaten with something that tore his flesh off of him. He was nailed to a cross and he was left to hang there until he could simply stop breathing. But see, this, this violence, and don't miss this. If you hear nothing else, hear this. This was the violence that would put an end to all violence. This sacrifice of his very son, this perfect son, Jesus Christ, who never sinned. He never committed an act of violence against anyone, against himself, against the people around him, against the world around him. He was perfect. And God said, you will suffer the ultimate violence. God enacted what Abraham couldn't. Remember Abraham? I want you to take your son up this mountain. You're going to worship by killing him. And God says, don't. I wanted to know your faith and I've seen your faith. And now I'm providing something different for you to sacrifice. And his son was spared. God, no one showed up for God and said, well, we'll give a better way. God had to lower the knife to allow his son to die on the cross. The curtain was torn in two and this violence of separation was undone. People were called back together. When Jesus died, the world was starting to become right again. Shalom was starting to be brought back together. Reconciliation became an option. Mark 10, 44, this is where I'll close says, whoever wants to be first, this is what Jesus says, whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. I will allow you to commit violence to me for the sake of your own salvation. As we close, here's what I know about this topic. Every one of us has suffered violence in our lives. Some of you It's been physical. You were abused. You were assaulted. You were attacked. You have had things happen in your life that you don't know what to deal with. You don't know how to find healing. And when we ask questions about why did God enact this violence in the Old Testament, you may actually be asking, why did God allow this violence to happen in my life? Some of you have have, have suffered the violence of death and loss and grief, and you're going, why do we live in a world that's still like this? God, why don't you change this? Why don't you get rid of cancer? Why don't you get rid of these things? God, why are you allowing this? Some of you are living that every single day. Some of you are living with a violence of your own uh, self. You look in the mirror and all you can see is the negative, all the things you hate, all the things that break you down, all the things that cause you to go, God, why would you make such junk? Why would you make such a mess? Why? And all the while, those words and that talk and the voices in your head are going, you're nothing, you're nothing, and you're being beaten down by that. 
some of you live with relationships where there's violence. And I don't mean physical violence. I mean emotional, verbal. There's this disconnection. There's, there's a need for reconciliation and you feel like it's never going to happen. And today I want to say to you, you serve a God who stepped into those places and said, I'm going to give my son one more act of violence. I want to allow him to die so that you can find freedom, so that you can find healing in a way that you've never imagined. And so as we close, this is going to be a song that we're actually just going to do more of singing over you. We'll invite you to stand and sing later, but this is really a place where I hope that God speaks into you and says, maybe today is the day that healing begins. Let's just pray together.